Welcome to Baron Talks. Today my guest is Dr. Ken Louie. He's an associate professor of economics in our Black School of Business. In addition to that, he is director of the Economic Research Institute of Erie, which is an applied research center of the Black School of Business here at Penn State Barron. He received his PhD from the University of Illinois. He was a Fulbright Scholar in the People's Republic of China and has won the Barron Council of Fellows Excellence in Teaching Award. And Ken, I know I, I haven't let you say anything yet, but hold on a little bit. Uh, you're well-known nationally as well. Your economic analyses are often featured on CBS News, CNBC, and NPR. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Ralph. It's good to be with you. Well, we've got a lot to talk about. I just marked this date. You know, we're recording on July 28th. We're in the midst of the COVID pandemic. A lot of our topics on this podcast have now been focused on people in our community, but particularly, you know, what is the impact of COVID and certainly the economy? Huge issue. And uh, you are a resident economist, and we're going to get into a lot of discussion. But before we do, tell us a bit, how did you get here to Barron? What's your what's your path to Barron? Uh, sure. Uh, believe it or not, when I was a sophomore in college, I really didn't know what I was going to do. But I was fortunate to have a few very, very passionate and inspiring teachers, both as an undergraduate and also in graduate school. And they really instilled in me a very, very deep passion in understanding economics. Uh, so I eventually thought that it would be a great career to teach it uh, and to keep up with the latest trends in the economy. So that's how I ended up being an economist. Penn State Barron at the time provided the best balance in terms of teaching bright undergraduates and also research uh, resources that allowed me to uh, continue my work in, in economic analysis. Um, you know, we're glad you made that choice many years ago. And, uh, you know, the thing about, you know, uh, classes in economics is undergraduates fear them, right? Isn't that one of the things? But maybe when they find out, get into them, they find they're not so bad. Is that your experience? Yes. You know, there's a standard joke about economics uh, that says you can split students up into two kinds. Uh, one group really hates economics and the other group really, really hates economics. <laughs> I think that sums it up. Well, you know, I find economists, they're fascinating people. And uh, it's the way you think, you analyze problems, you know, and it's not just, you know, the uh, the economy, all sorts of facets of life that you can look at rational choice or what we believe is rational choice. So how do you explain the field of economics to, like, say, your, your parents or family members? How do you tell them what you do? Sure. That's a wonderful question, because unfortunately, I think the reason that economics has uh, such a poor reputation is because most people go into the class with preconceived ideas. Most people think that it's really all about making money or uh, looking after one's self-interest. Uh, but in fact, economics teaches us a very, very important and valuable way uh, to look at society as a whole and to understand and to appreciate all the forces that affect us as individual decision makers and that ultimately influence the performance of the economy and the prosperity of society. So if you look at it through that broader lens of uh, the social consequences of economic decisions, I think students would actually 
like to learn more about economics uh, from that broader perspective. No, that's a great point. And really the field that I'm sure you've all looked at, it, you, it really needs to be branded that way because uh, it is so fascinating. It applies to so many facets of life, and you see so many successful economists. It, it, it is amazing, actually. I think it's maybe a little bit unsung. We need to get more students into our major. Yes, we're constantly trying to recruit students to put out this message. And you're absolutely right, uh, Dr. Ford. The research repeatedly tells us that those who have taken formal courses in economics at the university level, in the long run, they tend to make better decisions, better in the sense of being more impactful, more effective, both in their personal lives and in, in their professional lives. And that's because what we, what we teach them in economics is really a way of thinking, a framework uh, for them to make better de- decisions. Well, tell us about this research center that you lead here. Uh, it's probably, you know, I don't know if I've checked it out to be sure, but I bet you that you're the longest standing research center on this campus. It's called Erie, the Economic Research Institute of Erie. So tell our listening audience, what do you do there? Yes, we certainly go way back. It was established by my predecessors, my very esteemed colleagues, Dr. Barry Weller and Dr. Jim Curry, uh, way back in 1982. And we are very fortunate that uh, building upon their foundations, we are now uh, probably considered to be one of the most respected sources of information and analysis when it comes to the Erie economy. So our goal is very simple. We try to compile and analyze data and other relevant economic information about Erie. Uh, and we make this research available to the local community with the goal of helping members across the community, whether they be average citizens or business leaders or government leaders, to help them make more informed, fact-based decisions. Now, we also train students. So this is another vital part of our, our mission. Uh, we hire student assistants who work for us, and they learn very valuable skills. Many of our assistants go on to very successful careers in their own right. Uh, so we're very proud of that. And all of this fits into the overall mission of Penn State University, our teaching, our research, our outreach and service to the community. Uh, all of this is really part and parcel of what we do as members of the Penn State community. Yeah, I don't think it's integrated any better than the way you do it uh, in your your uh, economic research institute. And what a way for a student to get experience and understand what's going on in real life. Yes, absolutely. Well, let me jump to, you know, our current situation. And, uh, you know, Erie is a, is a manufacturing community, uh, although that's changing and we talk a lot more about that. Uh, recessions have often impacted us maybe differently than the rest of the country. What are you seeing? What are you know? What are your indicators telling you about the Erie economy right now? Uh, sure. First of all, you're absolutely right that uh, we have historically been more reliant on manufacturing, and perhaps partly as a result, uh, we've experienced upturns and downturns in a slightly different way. For instance. Uh, recessions in Erie, the, the major economic downturns, have tended on average to be more long-lasting. Uh, for instance, since the 1960s, 
the average length of a recession for the U.S. economy as a whole is about 11 and a half months. But in Erie, during the same time period, recessions have averaged over 19 months on, on average. Uh, and so we tend to be a little bit longer in terms of getting out of any downturn that we might experience. But moving ahead to the current situation, we are, like most other metro areas, quite adversely affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, just to give you a very, very quick big picture, uh, since January of this year, uh, just before the onset of the pandemic, up until June, which is the latest month for which we have data, uh, Erie lost over 16,000 jobs, which represents over 12% of total non-farm employment. So that's a rather wow. remarkable downturn. But even if you compare that to the nation, I thought I heard it was 13 or 14 percent. So it seems to be on par with the rest of the country, or is that greater than the rest of the country? No, it is relatively on par with the country as a whole. Obviously, different metro areas will vary. Some outperform Erie and others perform even less well. Uh, but yes, the national economy also has been losing jobs uh, in the past few months, April being the, the most severe uh, month of the downturn so far. Have you gone back and historically looked, you know, at pandemics and other shocks? I mean, pandemics must have a very special set of uh, circumstances around them. And, of course, we all hear about the pandemic of 1918, and maybe that gives us insight. I mean, does history tell us anything here? Um, yes, I haven't specifically looked at previous pandemics. Uh, I'm afraid I'm not as familiar with the pandemic that hit us uh, 100 years ago. But what I did look at was the most recent um, major economic hit that we took. This was the Great Recession uh, about 10 years ago. And so if you look at that recession, uh, we were already quite traumatized. Uh, unemployment rose to over 10%, about 10.1% uh, at the trough, the, the lowest point of the recession. But what we see now is that the employment picture is even worse than it was during the Great Recession. As I've said, just in the last six months alone, employment fell by over 12%. Um, so this is in many ways uh, worse than the Great Recession, uh, you'd have to go as far back as the Great Depression of the late 1920s, early 1930s uh, to see a greater downturn in terms of employment and uh, levels of unemployment that exceed the, the current rate. You know, the one thing, though, that does strike me is, uh, I'm, by the way, of course, I'm no economist, but I went back, you know, and you looked at the, the data and you saw actually even in the Great Depression, as horrible as it is, and this is hard because we're all living through it. I'm not trying to minimize it, but there is hope. I mean, it comes out and you can see that that dip corrects itself. Now, it may take three to five years for that dip to correct itself. But historically, there's really never been a time, at least in our modern history, where the economies haven't corrected. That's also a very good point, uh, and that's actually part of a, a long-standing and still ongoing debate in the economics profession, uh, which is to what extent have we, in some sense, repealed 
cycle, the business cycle. That is, have we learned so much about how the macroeconomy works that we can implement the proper policies and set off the right tools uh, to mitigate the severity of those downturns? Uh, and I'm afraid it's not a completely settled question. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's probably plausible to argue that, yes, we've learned sufficiently so that now we more or less know how to cushion any major downturn. But in terms of eliminating or completely uh, rescinding the business recession, I think that's still uh, a long way off, if ever, we, we can hope to achieve. Yeah, and I, I guess I'm not saying that they, they, they are ever eliminated, but eventually – Things tend to recover, of course, unless you have a greater economic collapse or something happens to your social political system. There's some confidence that there's there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Yes, that has certainly been the historical experience. Uh, when I teach macroeconomics, uh, that's a key concept that we go up and we go down, almost like a roller coaster. The uh, amplitudes vary and the duration of the business cycle varies, but we can pretty much expect the economy to pick back up eventually uh, and by the same token expect it to turn downward again, uh, you know, in due course when things are not perfectly correct. Absolutely. Now, the uh, the thing that, you know, everyone is, uh, I mean, this is huge news and I, I think you've actually got to be really careful because there's so much out there and there, you know, the whole thing has been politicized, the pandemic. Um, it seems uh, very, I would say, fair to say you, you've got to get the, the pandemic under control and you've got to get people, make sure that you're ensuring safety as much as possible before you can really get the economy going. But you can't say it's an either or. It's a both and is what I like to say. But safety has to come first. And I think we're seeing, you know, we're seeing that this summer. Things started to at least look better, but then we saw that second, you know, surge, and then everyone loses confidence. Yes, exactly right. I think most people would agree with that uh, assessment that we need to balance both of those objectives. It's really not either or. Uh, both are are really very very important, and the challenge is how best to balance those those objectives. Uh, but to your first point, uh, I agree wholeheartedly. Uh, there is so much um, potentially uh, incorrect information out there that, uh, you know, we're proud to say that the Erie Institute really contributes towards people understanding uh, all the issues that are based on fact and make decisions that are, in fact, uh, really uh representative of what's really happening rather than decisions that are based on half-truths. So so we hope to contribute to those efforts. So, so you released something called the Erie Leading Index, and that has a number of – I mean, how do you compute that? What What's what's that made up of? So you say it's fact-based, just like you said. Sure. Uh, so the Erie Leading Index is probably our signature uh, public – it comes out quarterly. Uh, in fact, we're working on the very next issue that should be coming out very soon. Uh, and it is a report that we send out to the community. The reason we call it the Erie Leading Index is that we look at eight variables, that is, factors 
that measure the performance of the economy at the national level, at the state level, and at the local level. And we aggregate or composite these eight underlying factors into a single number, which we call the index, the Erie Leading Index. And research at our institute has shown that when this index turns up or down, when it ticks up or when it turns down, uh, it tends to be a good indicator of what's likely to happen in the local economy in the foreseeable future. So something like in the next five to eight months, uh, we can expect this based on whether the ELI index has gone up or gone down. Uh, and our record of predicting those so-called turning points is actually fairly good. And this is another example of how, with this knowledge, it can help decision makers, especially in the business community, make more effective decisions if they can anticipate what's likely to happen locally uh, over the next five to eight months. So you said there, too, that, you know, it is an important tool for decision makers, but your record is fairly good. So it's not the dismal science that everybody thinks it is. Do you keep updating that model all the time? Is it a constantly evolving model based on experience? Oh, yes. Uh, in fact, one of the challenges of doing this kind of research is to keep up with all the changes in the data. Uh, this is why we hire research assistants. Uh, literally every month, uh, there is a new release of data by the major statistical reporting agencies, such as the Department of Commerce, the Department of Labor, um, and you, you have to update the numbers that feed into this overall composite index, uh, otherwise it won't be accurate. And furthermore, not only do new data come out every uh, month, but Data are constantly being revised, so we have to keep up with new numbers that are put out to revise previously released numbers in past months or past years. So it is a big challenge, but to the extent that we do keep up, uh, every quarter we bring to the community the latest facts and figures based on all of these statistical reports that we compile. Uh, based on that, we believe the index is a fairly good indicator. It's fairly reliable because it's up to date. Well, that's the fun of it, too, right, is that uh, you, you get to keep training students. There's always more to learn, and you get to learn as well. Um, I'm going to switch a little bit. I, you know, I'll switch back between the ERIE economy and national. And your index, of course, you know, combines both of those. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure I'm going to ask you some questions that will be impossible for you to, to answer. <laughs> Everyone wants to know the future. But if you look at the magnitude of the national deficit, so right now, you know, I'd like to get into the PPP program. Not sure everyone understands that, what it's doing. Um, but you look at the, the spending this year, which, you know, seems justified. You have to do this. But it's, uh, I pulled up the numbers today, $2.7 trillion is the deficit for the first nine months, $2 trillion more than last year. And I guess historically, you know, that happens maybe back in World War II and others. But is that sustainable? Um, I mean, and how do you get out of that? Is it, it you know, um, and is there any other precedent? Is this is this a level we haven't achieved before? Excellent questions. Uh, in fact, this is one of the major challenges that I always point to uh, when I make presentations to the community 
Beatty. I typically review what has been going on in the Erie economy. Uh, I typically try to present some of the rosier aspects of current trends. Uh, but then I close with some important caveats or qualifications uh, that should cause us some concern. And the deficit is, in fact, one of them. Uh, so, yes, many uh, observers, economists in particular, believe that in the long run, this is perhaps uh, higher than we can sustain. Uh, it is, uh, over the next 10 years, going to take us to levels that we have not seen before. Uh, and the pandemic, certainly because of things like the stimulus packages that have already been enacted, uh, in addition, there is a new one that's pending in Congress, uh, literally as we speak. All of this is, gonna, is going to add to the expenditure side of the government uh, budget. Uh, at the same time, because of the negative impact on the labor market from the pandemic, government revenues are going to be uh, down substantially. Uh, so the projections are that it's going to increase and the challenge beyond just getting out of the pandemic crisis is to get a better handle on finances, especially at the federal level. Now, of course, many state and local governments are also struggling, especially because of the expenditures not matching the reduced taxes during this very, very difficult time. Uh, but Yes, it, it, it's a very difficult challenge that we're going to have to confront. Perhaps we can postpone it until we get a better handle on the, the pandemic, uh, but it's something we will have to confront. Yeah, this is just one that I find people can't wrap their head around. Deficit and debt, actually, are not that hard to understand if you just spend a little time looking at it. You know, debt is what you fully accrued deficit is on, you know, what you're overspending on a year to year basis. But this is, you know, I shouldn't get into commentary. I'm asking you the questions, but it does, you know, my, my, you know, layman's viewpoint or, or research shows that the last time this happened was World War II, but there's a big difference there. You didn't start out with as much of a debt load and deficit to begin with. And you also had a different economic situation that drove you know, the post-war boom that was going to come out and you had more production. And it's not clear that we have those right now. And low interest rates will only go so far. I'm sure it's more complicated than that, but it seems to me this is a deeper problem that we're going to, to, to that may slow our growth for a long period of time. Yes. Um, in fact, one of the best known uh, pieces of research from a few years ago actually set a threshold uh, as to the, the potential negative consequences of huge government de uh, deficits uh, and debt. And according to this study by two prominent economists, one at Harvard, uh, one uh, at the University of Maryland at the time, uh, they argued that if you look across literally centuries of history and you ask how economies perform and what the impact is of government debt levels. Uh, their threshold, if I remember correctly, is somewhere in the neighborhood of maybe 80 to 90 percent of the economy's total output or GDP. And so right now we're pushing beyond that, that crucial threshold. 
The evidence they marshaled indicated that throughout these centuries of history, countries that accumulate debt at such high levels actually never quite recover, uh, even over the long term. And so it points to the, the immediacy of getting the finances under control. Now, having said that, I would add that, once again, the more immediate concern right now, obviously, is the pandemic. Yeah, and so absolutely. perhaps yeah, spending to help those who are in need perhaps should take slightly higher priority. Uh, and without being overly uh, political myself as well, uh, many commentators point to the fact that uh, it's okay really to incur a deficit when you have short-term problems such as the pandemic right now. But when we were in good times, when the economy was actually doing very well, we should have paid more attention to reigning in that deficit uh, for the proverbial rainy day. That's right, because it's, it's easy. Before you know it, you become so extended. And then when the hard time comes, you really feel it. And you make a great point. I just wanted to hit it. We'll make a little public service announcement here. I think what people really need to understand in this country, and by the way, in Erie, we're doing a really good job. People are wearing their masks. They're keeping their distance. You may want to make your political statement. Um, you, you can save people's lives. But for your own livelihood and the livelihood of the country, the longer this goes on, the more debt we accrue, the more economic ruin. You can't get back to normality until you fix the, you know, you get some level of safety. And that's just, uh, it, it can't be stated enough. <laughs> it's in our best interest, our own self-interest to do that. Ralph, let me uh, reinforce that by adding a little bit of economic theory. Uh, in fact, this is an example of what I mentioned at the very outset, that people who've studied economics tend to make better decisions. So the issue of wearing masks really comes from a standard economic concept that was developed many, many, many years ago. It's the concept of externalities. That is, we all have our freedom to do what we would like, except that that freedom is limited when it also spills over and creates negative consequences for others. And so the concept of externalities, if people understand that, perhaps would help them understand the importance that they are helping to protect society in minimizing those negative spillovers. Well, I love it. Let me, uh, you know, I, I have to ask this question. What do you read on a daily basis? I mean, what's, what are the things that influence your, you on a daily and monthly basis? Yeah, uh, right now I'm reading mostly uh, articles about the development of the vaccine because that's really, as you said earlier, the only way for, for us to get out of this crisis. Uh, but as well, I'm really right now very deep into a, a new book on immigration, uh, which just came out, I think, last month. It's fascinating because it tracks the history of U.S. policy with respect to immigration starting in the 1920s, and it's really just a remarkable historical analysis leading up to the present. Um, I suggest it highly because it helps us understand some of the current debates uh, regarding that very issue of immigration. What's the, can you tell us what the title is? Maybe you said it. Uh, I th don't quote me, but I think it's something like um, – an, an unbridled tide or uh, a rising tide, something to that effect, because it just came out. Uh, I, I don't have the title down. Pat. You know, I have the same problem. I'll read whole books or movies and watch them. And I, I yeah, it's just our minds focus on different things is, you know, so uh, 
but I think that would give our listeners enough. You know, we could do a whole podcast on on immigration and uh, the the impact on the economy. And you've you know given some you know great interviews and put on some seminars and conferences here on campus as well. Um, but the thing that always strikes me is there's also a really simple self-interested thing there. Maybe it fits into your theory of externalities. If you don't have more people, and you know, until our, our fundamental way of economic growth grows, if you don't have population growth and your population is shrinking, you can't. It is so hard to grow an economy. Uh, maybe it's possible, but I mean, look at what's happening in Japan. And if you took away immigration, I don't think there's any population growth in the U.S. I think it's it's shrinkage, and that's a real problem. Am am I I on good ground there? Yes, that's exactly (laughs) right. Japan is a very good case study. Uh, China, perhaps, is another example of how uh, the the lack of uh, heterogeneity uh, might present challenges as the population ages. So, yes, we... Uh, it, it, labor is such a vital resource, it really shouldn't matter as long as it's, it's productive labor where it comes from. Uh, that's how most economists would view it. Let's switch back to Erie. So, you know, it's been quiet, but you've seen some interesting announcements uh, over the last several weeks about uh, investment by uh, Erie Insurance, different, uh, um, different funds that are investing in, in Erie. Uh, the, the announcements are starting to come back about businesses coming here. What do you make of it all? Oh, I think uh, it's excellent news. I just read the news release last week about the infusion of $40 million by Erie Insurance and the Erie Community Foundation, along with a private partner. That's all good news. Uh, my main point, I think, is that even before the pandemic, Erie had been making very, very big strides, and we had been gathering a lot of momentum in terms of revitalizing the economy. As you know, a couple of years ago, our annual conference focused specifically on revitalization of the Erie economy. And so all of these efforts were already taking root before the pandemic. So my observation is that when we get out of this medical crisis, hopefully uh, the momentum will not slow down because we need that uh, infusion of investment that will increase prosperity and in- increase the uh, improve the quality of life for everybody in the community. Yeah, it's, it really is the hope, and I think we've all got to, in our organizations and, and our lives, keep trying to help support that because, as you said, for the first time we were, you know, Erie had lagged in growth relative to the rest of the nation for so long. It was finally starting to change, and then along comes the pandemic, and hopefully uh, we can pick that back up here in the next year. Yes, exactly. Well, we are close to the end of our time. So is there anything you would like to add, anything that we haven't covered here today, Ken? Well, uh, I'm sorry time is brief, but I'll just add one closing remark, and that is I think our historical record is that we're fairly resilient. And so if we keep up our cautious optimism, uh, the resilience of people locally will sustain uh, our efforts to get out of this crisis. That's what I would leave our listeners with. That's a great message to end with. Thank you for being my guest today. My guest today has been Dr. Ken Louie. Director of the Economic Research Institute of Erie, right here in the Black School of Business at Penn State Barron. Always fascinating. I love talking to you. Uh, We'll have to do this again. Yes, of course. Thank you for inviting me.
Take care. We'll see you.